Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You are listening to the Hiking Radio Network, where we talk the walk with shows by hikers about hikers for everybody. Mighty Blue on the Appalachian Trail, the ultimate midlife crisis. Join Steve and his guests every week as he staggers from Georgia to Maine. Hey guys, thanks for coming back to the podcast. This is episode 402 of the show. And in case you don't know, you're listening to Mighty Blue on the Appalachian Trail, the ultimate midlife crisis. I'm Steve Adams on Mighty Blue, and this week we're going to be heading across the pond to my old home, the UK. Now, many of you know that I hiked the West Highland Way in Scotland last year, and I plan to hike the 630-mile southwest coast path next year. Well, Dan Claver, whose original interest was in a PCT through hike, well, Dan just upped the game for all Brits wanting to see their most beautiful trails. I'm not going to steal Dan's thunder, but let's just say that he's making me think long and hard about what he's just done. We're going to hear from Dan in a moment. Then, with Jessica coming up on nine months on the AT this year, we catch up with her again as she approaches Pennsylvania. And as several of our Mighty Blue class of 2023 have experienced, our listeners have been reaching out to help her achieve her dream of a thru-hike. Jessica will be along after Dan, followed by Then the Hell Came by George Stephanos. This week, George gets his first sighting of Katahdin. For those of us who've experienced that moment, we know exactly how he felt. So let's get on and meet Dan Claver, or Rockhopper. Our guest today is a fellow Brit, and unfortunately we haven't got subtitles for you. He's Dan Claver, and I promise you, he's got quite a story that proves the serendipity of thru-hiking that all of us feel when we're out there. Hey Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, it's an absolute welcome. And yours is a, I think, and the more I looked at it, it's a multi-layered story that's going to unfold as we move through it. But first, let's hear a little bit about you. What was the long-distance trail that first attracted you to the idea of long-distance hiking? I think for me, um, I grew up very much involved in competitive cross-country athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as sort of time went on um, and my competitive days started to started to sort of become less frequent, um, the transition into thru-hiking for me felt like a natural um, process. Really? Um, and I think for me, well, getting into running in the first place was very much a case of it was a natural talent. It was something that I was good at uh-huh. and it evolved from there. Did you do a lot of competitive uh, races in? 
I did. Yeah, I, I competed for my county. I was county champion um, oh, for nice. a number of years, um, cross country athletics, um, represented my university, uh, which was all fantastic. Um, but I think one part of competing that I didn't necessarily enjoy was the pressure, um, mostly from myself. Um, I'm always putting myself under pressure to perform well. Isn't it always, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I think because I started from quite a young age and there was always this expectation that um, I would do well uh, from others, um, I carried that pressure through with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was always this pressure on me. Um, But then when I transitioned into through hiking, I could utilise the same skills, the same traits that I uh, use whilst running. Sure. Um, it was much more leisurely it was much more enjoyable Um, but at the same time I could still engage with that element of competitiveness Mm. um, but it was on a completely personal level so whilst I always enjoyed the more leisurely side of through hiking um, I'm always sort of pushing myself to to do longer distances to (laughs) to do high mileage days but without pushing it too far Um, because at the end of the day hiking is about enjoying the environment and enjoying the experience so it was fun finding that right balance between you know pushing myself and the competitive um, spirit of through hiking but you know just making sure that i was always enjoying the process yeah but there was one particular trail that attracted you i know and you started working towards it and it wasn't the at was it so t- no, <laughs> tell it us about the trail you were looking to do um so this all started from the pacific crest trail um like so many through hikers, they aspire to hike these long trails. And the PCT for me was uh, the epitome of um, what I wanted to do. Um, and yeah, when I discovered the PCT, um, I was still in the midst of my uh, education and training to become a qualified architect. Um, so I just started my master's degree in Sheffield. And I think at that time, um, I, I, I'd just come out of a a long five-year relationship um and going through that transition leaving the relationship going into university sure. um it was it was a very difficult stage of my life um but that opportunity and I'll, I'll call it an opportunity because it's um it created a, a void in my life um i should say uh, and that allowed me to really really value reevaluate um where i wanted to go from from that point um, sure. yeah and then so the pct became something that i really wanted to do and so for the next five six years throughout my education because the plan was always to go and complete the pct once i qualified right um i hadn't done any traveling prior to that so that was my that was my gap year as it were all oh, um, right okay and then so my qualification exams were scheduled um i was working towards the end of my uh, exams and and then spring 2020 alarm um, bells alarm bells <laughs> yeah um, we all know what happened there so the pct was scheduled for uh 2020 they had my permits um I, I planned to the extent that all, all my gear was pretty much purchased um all the planning was done to the extent that you can you can plan on sure. a hike like the pct sure. um but yeah with 2020 and the difficulty that that's presented um i had to cancel my plans for and did you have to because you were uh you're because you were foreign you couldn't fly over there because of covid or was it because you chose or or because people weren't not so many people were hiking the pct it was more the logistical side of things right Um, i'm sure the i'm sure the 
the ethical side of things would have, would have come in um, had it been logistically yeah. possible. Um, yeah. But for me, I hadn't I hadn't obtained my visa by that point oh, right. uh, because the interviews were repeatedly being cancelled. Um, so there was no chance of that happening. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, travel, um, air travel was was just not happening at all. It was all it was all shut down. Life's so. often about timing, as once again we're going to find out in a minute. <laughs> and <laughs> as our listeners are going to hear, you're a real detail oriented guy, aren't you? Tell us about your preparation for the PCT, because it seems to me you did a heck of a lot of prep for it. You know, in in the UK. So what what did you actually do? So in terms of um, preparing for the PCT, I mean, I'm very lucky being here in in the UK that um, there's a a whole vast landscape of absolutely incredibly beautiful trails. Yeah. Um, so it really started in 2018. That's when I got my teeth into the long distance trails um, around me. Um, and that started with the Cotswold Way. Um, right. But that was it. That, that, that first trail didn't actually go to plan. Um, being the age I was, sort of mid 20s. Um, you feel as though you're invincible. And, oh, sir. I'm <laughs> and, 70. I still feel invincible. <laughs> and I made the very rookie mistake of attempting a 100-mile hike in sort of three days, um, <laughs> which, nice which, which at the time, uh, you know, was was something that I thought I could do easily. Um, but, yeah, I got to about mile 68 and um, injured my IT band in my left oh. leg. Uh, and that's Is that something, funny enough, is that something, does that show a difference between – long distance hiking and cross country running because I know one of the big things for most people starting too fast and to trying to do too many miles at the beginning is always a mistake as a through hiker. Yes. But as a runner, you can pretty run, not full out, but you can run pretty long distances, can't you? Yes, that's, that's true. Um, I think I've always been used to pushing myself from the very first meter. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, uh, a shock uh, to have gone sort of through that process, but um, you know it, it sent me back physically for a good year, year and a half. Wow, um, really? Bad yeah, bad. Blimey. yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty bad. Um, but I mean, for the sort of, I would say probably about a year, and then it, it just took a few more months just to fully get um, back to full working order. Um, but at the time, it was it was the worst thing that worst thing that could have happened because I had ambitions of doing the PCT and doing yes, longer yeah. trails after that, and suddenly I've got this injury and it's it's keeping me out for several months. Um, mm. But looking back now, knowing what I've uh, completed to date, um, it's it was actually a blessing in disguise because it 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 taught me very harsh lessons, and um, I had to essentially go back to the drawing board. Um, understand it's humbling it's it humbling is, isn't it, it? it is humbling yeah absolutely <laughs> nothing wrong with that by the way as well no. <laughs> um, was it the preparation that you enjoy or was it was it feeding you in some other way than the long than long distance running did because hiking is a very particular type of sport or pastime and i know for many of us it just does something to our to our mindset and to our heads what about you was it something that you were getting more out of it than or were you just enjoying the prepare the physical preparation uh, I think for me it was it's the whole process, and it's not just the physical preparation. I I absolutely love you know, the the preparation and planning behind the computer screen just as just as much as I do right. you know <laughs> analyzing maps and working yes. out the routes. Um, um, so all of that preparation, uh, both physical and, and otherwise, um, just makes the whole process of actually doing the trail much more enjoyable because I know it's 
it's all that time and effort paying off and i'm reaping, sure. I'm reaping the rewards of the research because i've um you know i found certain areas uh, for exploration and and camping and it, it for me it just makes the whole process and experience much more much more fulfilling so after the um the PCT was put on hold, let's say, for the time being. Yeah. Um, you started doing other hikes in the UK. You did the South Downs Way, the Southwest Coast Path, which is the one that I say I'd really love to do. You did it in 20, 26 days and then 21 days. I'm expected to do it in more than, <laughs> more than those together, but you know, we'll come to that another time. You did the West Island Way, the Cape Roth Trail, and then the Pembrokeshire Coast and the Pennine Way. Yes. But then, in June 2021, you had a bit of a spanner put in the works of preparation for, for a long-distance hike, didn't you? <laughs> I did. You met somebody. Tell us I, about that. I did. So I think um, with 2020 um, causing a lot of disruption and uh, delaying my plans with PCT, uh, I then uh, went through the whole cycle again of attempting to do the PCT in 21 and mm-hmm. The restrictions were still uh, in place and uh, yeah. that didn't allow me to do the PCT that year. Uh, yeah. And then later in the summer, I met uh, my partner, Claire, um, which in itself is um, quite a nice story because it turns out that we both we both grew up in the same town um, for most of our lives. And mm. um, there are two high schools in, in, our, in our hometown and we each went to a different high school um so we didn't we didn't really know each other at the time um right. and then claire spent two years living in buenos aires and then two years living in boston and she came back in november 2020 um after spending many months through the pandemic uh, living in isolation and i think that's um triggered her to to realize that it was the time it was time to come home and uh, sure. because of that we we managed to meet um we lived five minutes apart, so she, <laughs> she she's travelled around the world, done lots of amazing things, and comes back home uh, to live with her parents for the short term, and then we uh, yeah. we meet. Yeah, yeah. So that obviously changed the equation for you. Did you put on hold? Well, you did put on hold, and and it's kind of indefinitely delayed the the idea of doing the PCT because when we spoke before, you said that you chose Claire over the PCT. Which is a pretty strong statement, by the way. Which yes. is impressive. Was it tough to let go of that dream? I mean, I'm sure Claire's Claire's worth any P, number of PCTs, <laughs> but was that still in your mind that it was something you still like to do? So, yes, certainly, because I think it was it was still a very present idea um, and a plan in my head when we were together um, in those sort of early early months. Sure. Um, and it was it was playing on my mind a little bit, um, yeah. but I knew I I'd, I'd found someone incredibly special, yeah. um, and so when twenty two came around, um, and suddenly the restrictions were easing, and it was it was seeming like a possibility to actually do the PCT after, sure. after so many years. Sure. Um, but at the time, I just felt this wasn't the right time. Um, I had lots. Your of, friend didn't some of your friends go? Yes, I had a, a couple that of must friends. Have hurt. <laughs> yeah, a couple of friends who I'd sort of spent the past past few years talk, you know, spending every every living moment um, discussing the PCT and expressing how how incredible how incredible it would be. Um, so then yeah. seeing them go and go go to the states and and complete it um, cool. was obviously amazing for them and amazing yes, for me to witness. But it 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 was difficult, um, 
but um, yeah, I, I, because the because the idea of a long hike hadn't quite gone away at it. And no. so, what was the thought process that led you to this year's epic adventure, which is what we're going to talk about now? Yeah. Tell us, you know, what were you looking to do? Uh, well, I I knew that I couldn't keep going through this cycle year after year of sure. trying to do the PCT because I knew that essentially it was going to be very disruptive to both well, our lives together. Um, sure. And whilst sure. you know, whilst I'm, I have no doubt it would have been possible and it would have been a pleasurable experience for both of us, I just felt that it, it would have just been slightly too disruptive in those early stages. Um, so I knew that sure. I couldn't keep going through this cycle and uh, we were very excited to, to plan our life together and, and get things moving. Um, so I I wanted to essentially break down essentially what it was about the PCT that I found so enchanting. Um, and for me, it was it was the the, the person endeavour, the physical challenge, um, doing something longer, faster, more adventurous, more dangerous um, <laughs> than I'd done before. Um, and of course, the PCT, as as everyone knows, it's stunningly beautiful. Um, but I realised, well, I I had realised over the, the the few years of, of through hiking in, in the UK that there are some beautiful, beautiful trails mm, uh, in the UK, definitely. and it's it's just phenomenally beautiful. And um, yeah, then the idea popped into my head. Well, rather than hiking the length of the United States, why don't I hike the length of the United Kingdom? Um, Which, by the way, by the way, I want to tell people this. You know, the the PCT is about twenty six hundred miles, something like that. You know, from from Canada, two thousand six hundred fifty. Yeah, right. So from Mexico to Canada. Now, most people think that Britain is about four hundred miles, five hundred <laughs> miles, six hundred miles, whatever it is. You hiked two thousand four hundred fifty miles in Britain this year as a as a through hike, didn't you? Is it yes. two four fifty? Two four fifty. And I suppose all those training hikes in Britain you've done already, they allowed you to plan that that long hike. Yes. What were the parameters you were trying to achieve for this year's hike? Was it a connected footpath I mean, in much the same way the PCT was? Uh, for me, it was, it, was, it was quite simple, really. It was, it was really just connecting the most beautiful parts of, of Great Britain mm. um, and really just exploring it in one continuous through hike. Um, I mean, there is a, a classic... Uh, route that goes from one end to the other um, uh, and that's about 1200 miles um, so yeah with my 2450 mile routes I've more than doubled it <laughs> um, which is just amazing yeah I think if you if you were to look at the route on a map there is not much going south at all <laughs> um, right exactly in, obviously the, the the general trajectory is is in a southwesterly direction, but there's a lot, there's a lot of zigzagging going on. Yeah, let's explain that because there's the two famous spots in the UK from the point of going from one end to the other. Traditionally, that was Lands End to John O'Groats or John O'Groats to Lands End. So tell everybody where John O'Groats is and where Lands End is. Okay, yeah. So John O'Groats is the most northeasterly place in mainland Great Britain. And um, Lands End is the most southwesterly points in Great Britain, um, and they're the two. They're, they're the two spots, aren't they? Yes. Um, and oh, I meant to ask you. By the way, how were you able to not only do all those preparation hikes, but also the big hike this year? Didn't work get in the way. It did a little bit. 
Um, <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. I know you go fast, man, but you, you're taking a lot of time off. Yes. Well, thankfully, with um, I mean, because the UK and, uh, and Great Britain isn't isn't to the same scale as the United States, for example. There are lots of shorter trails, um, and the majority of the trails that I had completed prior to doing my long hike this year were achievable within a few days, one week, two weeks. So taking time off work was no problem at all. Um, mm. uh, but then with the likes of, uh, so in summer 2020, I did, as you mentioned previously, the South Downs Way, the South East Coast Path, the West Highland Way, and the Cape mm. Rath Trail. I was able to do uh, the South Downs Way and the South East Coast Path over the summer uh, because the system that the government had implemented allowed uh, furlough to be paid uh, to to employees, um, so salaries were subsidised by the government um, whilst nice. whilst whilst everything was was shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gifted me some time over the summer to do those two trails, um, and then I was unfortunately made redundant along with two other architects um, right. at my practice um, at, at the very end of the summer uh, when that scheme started to um, started to close um, and companies and and work wasn't really picking up as much as it as it could have done um uh, so then i i just took i I simply took the opportunity whilst i was in between jobs uh, to go and hike the length of the west highlands of scotland uh, and do west do the west highland way and the cape rath trail Um, so that was that was the opportunity that i did um, for for those four hikes Um, and then with this uh, current hike um, with it being 2450 miles um, i calculated that to be approximately three months um <laughs> which uh obviously isn't really is ambitious ambitious by the way <laughs> yeah uh, which obviously isn't really achievable within the normal parameters of um uh, annual leave so yeah um yeah claire and i were sort of discussing our, our future where we wanted to go in the next five years and we were discussing uh, the prospect of relocating being close to family and i sort of took the opportunity to leave my current job oh. um go and fulfill this this ambition of my crazy life. dream I've had crazy dream literally five <laughs> six years um because it's, it's it's just been eating away at me for for so yeah, long I can tell, and, I, can tell. I, and yeah. I, I kind of know the feeling myself and, and you started on may the 17th this year yes. at john o'groats um yes. scotland can be notoriously wet how was it for that was it pretty wet up there or cold up there but may's probably not a bad time actually is it scotland was an absolute dream it was the was best it? weather i could have ever wow. hoped for um obviously as i said i i i've been to scotland before done um a couple of long trails up there and it has the reputation to be unforgiving uh and that's being (laughs) that's being kind it can be it can be very tough very brutal very wet horizontal rain i seem to remember several times yes and (laughs) you often find that there's more water in your shoes than there is falling out the sky um (laughs) because yeah the, the the bogs in Scotland are notorious, and um, but uh, yeah, it, it it adds to the character of the, of the trails up there. But because the weather was so good, it was it was um, for the first week. I would say it was fairly typical weather for early summer. Um, sure. But from the start of the Cape Wrath Trail on day six for the next month, month and a half, it was just sublime summer sunshine. Wow! And how how awesome! How it awesome. was it, it was absolutely amazing. And your first route was actually an incomplete 
trail that is it's, it's going to be a trail at some stage. It's going to I be the so. North the North Highland Way. Was that basically hacking your way across country? Or was there actually a path somewhere there or not? There was no Waymarks path at all. Um, all right. Okay. So as you say, yeah, it's 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 hoping to become the North Highland Way, which you know, according to my routes is just short of 160 miles. Right. Um, and it's it quite cleverly just follows the coast of North Scotland uh, from John O'Groats to Cape Wrath, so from Lighthouse sure. to Lighthouse. Um, and Beautiful. Yeah, so there's, there's there's no way marking, hard any footpaths. Um, there's a, a, a lot of scrambling, a lot of following sheep tracks, um, <laughs> which which can be uh, quite adventurous sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was it having completed the, the trail that I've just done. That was certainly one of those challenging sections, oh, really? um, and okay. and required the most research and planning. Um, right. I think I spent about two or three weeks researching it through using all different sources. Right. But whilst it was probably the most challenging, it was incredibly beautiful. It's the the, the coastline in Scotland is is just amazing, sure. um, and so it, it 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 was very very quiet, very untouched. Um, I bet there's yeah. not a trial there. That's why <laughs> there's yeah. a reason for that. And you actually had an injury scare in those early miles, didn't you? I think it was after Cape Wrath, wasn't it? Uh, was it, it was. It was in the early stages of Cape Wrath. Yeah. Right. So what what happened? Uh, well, if I tell this story, people will think that I didn't learn my lesson. <laughs> uh, so there, I, there you go. There yeah, you go. <laughs> I was I was in good shape, but um, uh, you can always do more training, uh, I suppose. But I. I pushed pretty hard from from the beginning um, because I was doing long days up in Scotland in in May, early June. Oh yeah, you had very long days, didn't you? Very long days, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't getting dark until about half ten. So I was I was I was waking up at sunrise, walking all day, and uh, finishing at sunset, uh, which was yeah, just absolutely absolutely magical. Uh, But I was averaging thirty miles a day for the first the first week or so. And my, my body felt absolutely fine. I felt energized. I felt rested, relaxed. Um, but then as I was finishing the first day on Cape Wrath, my, my knees just started to ache and and I knew something was was was, was playing up. Sure. Um, but this was at the, the very end of the first day. So I, I thought, okay, this is fine. I'll just, I'll pitch my tent. It's the end of the day. I'll wake up tomorrow morning and see how things are. I did that, and the pain hadn't really um, alleviated, and it got slightly worse. Uh, so I, I hiked a few extra miles, resupplied, uh, but resupplied with the knowledge that I was going to keep going at the same pace <laughs> so, as I had been. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a couple of days' worth of food uh, with me uh, hiking along, and then I knew that the pain wasn't really wasn't really shifting and i think this is one of the things that was was different compared to all the trails is that um this was certainly a marathon but it was a very long marathon and not sure. a sprint and i had to i had to learn learn new skills and i think knowing when to stop is much more important than knowing when to keep going uh awesome. that's, that's one of the things that i thought um i certainly took away uh, from this experience mm-hmm. and i think something that was a common common feature on this on this trip is that Claire well she wasn't there with me in person uh, she was back home she was there every step of the way um, sure. she was always at the end of the phone and whatever issue I had whatever problem I had it was hers as well and 
you know, she, she just proved herself to be the absolute best teammate. So we had a conversation about, about my knees and we agreed that it was best for me just to stop early on that day. Um, so whilst it was difficult because I'm always pushing myself to do <laughs> long miles, long days. Um, and I, I got off to such a, a bit of a theme here, by the way, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I, I stopped at about two o'clock in the afternoon um, while camping. Oh, you slacker. You I know. Slacker. <laughs> Only a half day. Uh, but huh. I found a beautiful lock um, while camped next to it uh, for the rest of the day. But I knew I, I, I had to sort of keep moving uh, because sure. I, I only had limited supplies. And I knew if, if I if I was to go to the point where I had to recover properly, I needed more than just a wild camp spot next to a lock. Um, yeah. I had to get to somewhere a bit more established with, um, you know, shops and communications. So, sure. um, yeah, I made a decision to, to get going the next day, um, but just take it a bit easier, sort of go down a couple of gears. Um, 25 which, miles only? <laughs> which which <laughs> I think I, I did, I did 20, 20 miles the oh next day. And, um, oh. and I think... But I think, you ba- did you basically walk it off though? Pretty much, yeah. That's I was, nice. That's nice. I was. Uh, but I, we, we always say, on, we also on the AT. Let, you get an injury one day, next day it doesn't hurt because something else hurts worse. Yes. <laughs> we, you know, we get all sorts of injuries. Yeah. But anyway, you headed south from Cape Roth on the Cape Roth Trail, then the West Highland Way, which I did last year, yeah. before kind of zigzagging your way east and then west as you travel south, before taking a sharp right turn into and around Wales. Tell us about the logistics of doing all of this. Is is it um, because I I would have thought you'd be staying at the bed and breakfast quite regularly, but you just didn't at all, did you? No, not once. Did, was this? I mean, I'm not not prying on your finances. Was this to save money, or you just wanted that wild experience? Uh, completely the latter. Uh, I I I made the conscious decision not to right. sleep in a bed uh, once right. on the whole trip. Uh, just- so. The entirety of the trip was uh, 88 days, uh, just short of 88 days, so 87 nights. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I bar camped for 71, 71. nights. I got, yeah. I got the numbers here. <laughs> 71, 71 nights while camping, four in shelters, which you call as a bothy? What's a yes. bothy? Uh, What's, so, is that sort of a shepherd's hut or something? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so bothies hmm. are pretty commonplace, most, mostly in Scotland. Uh, but mm-hmm. you do find some in, in Northern England and Wales. And essentially they are, as you say, they could have been shepherd's huts, uh, um, mountain refuge huts. Uh, some were even residences uh, up until only a few decades ago. And these are very, very basic, um, typically stone-built shelters. Um, some have uh, a ground floor on the first floor, but some are just a ground floor. But right. they're very, very basic. They have a hearth. They have platforms for sleeping. Uh, no mm-hmm. running. Most of them don't have running water, um, no gas or electricity, nothing. It's just a basic shelter. That's um, okay. That's okay. Yeah. And then you had eight. Then you had eight nights in campsites and four in gardens. Did they know? Did the house owner know you were in their <laughs> garden, or or was this one of those particularly wild camping spots, or was somebody you knew? Uh, thankfully, they were people that I knew. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always, always good. And was there much road walking or were you able to go from trail to trail fairly directly? In other words, have you kind of established a, a good long distance hike through the UK or does it actually take in quite a bit of road walking? Uh, I, I believe it's a very good route to do from end to end without doing too much road walking. 
nice. because I, the way that I planned the route was essentially linking up existing long distance footpaths. And remarkably, I think there are only two or three links between trails where there's maybe a, a 10, 15 mile stretch. Uh, That's and, great. And, and, and even they are mostly uh, completely off-road. They're, they're, they're just, nice. like t- just like typical trails. Uh, but sounds um, great i tell you yeah. I, I was fascinated when i saw the map in fact funny enough dan has sent me this terrific map and all details of all the hikes he took effectively the different paths and stages that he took and he's he's let me make that available to you guys so if you want it there'll be a link in the show notes uh, we'll talk about that um and going the way you did you could pretty much see all the paths of scotland england wales he wanted to see but you're ultimately heading for the southwest coast path which um, I know is one one of your favourites. Is that is there a reason why it's one of your favourites, or is this this was was that the first long distance trail you'd actually did? I mean, very quite a long distance trail. Yes, it was. It was the first big hike. I would I would say that I completed. So after completing the Cotswold Way, the Ridge Way, and the South Downs Way, which are which mm-hmm. are all typically about hundred miles. Um, sure. The Southwest Coast Path, it being six hundred and thirty. You know, it's it's six times as long. It's uh, much yeah, sure. more difficult, much more strenuous. Um, but I think. Oh, hang on, hang on! How strenuous? <laughs> <laughs> I might have to rethink. <laughs> it's all worth it. It's all worth it. <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. You, all right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you you did that again. Was that as as beautiful the second time around for you then? Yes. Yes, it was. Because this yeah. was at the end of your hike, wasn't it? This was where you were actually going to gonna finish so it must have been even extra special to do it it's almost like a, a victory lap on it wasn't it that's that's pretty much how i saw it because after doing it the first time um it it completely stole my heart i love that trail so much um and there's there's an element of you know objectively it, it being just a, a very very good trail mm-hmm. but also there's you know my half my family are, are cornish um so how oh, are they all oh, yeah. right nice so right. i've spent practically my whole life um, holidaying in Cornwall and the north coast of Cornwall uh, serves as a, a very prominent section of the southwest coast path. Yeah. Um, so it was, it's, it's, it's just wonderful for me to uh, incorporate that as, as part of the southwest coast path. Now you just mentioned how it, it uh, won your heart. Let's return now to Claire, who <laughs> also won your heart. You'd arranged for her to meet you at the end, hadn't you? But you changed the plan. What'd you do? I did well. Um, it was always my my. It was it was always our plan for Claire and I to meet up at different stages along the trail, and uh, we did do that about, about uh, halfway, halfway along. Uh, but I I planned for my parents, Claire's parents, uh, and my sisters to uh, meet me at at the end uh, in Paul at the end of the Southwest Coast Path. Nice. But I I managed to convince Claire to come down a day early. Um, uh, I managed to convince her that uh, while camping in a one-person tent uh, on the side of impressive. a impressive was impressive uh, was an enjoyable experience. Um, yes. But, how did uh, she react to that? How did how did she react to that first? Uh, at first, she wasn't convinced. <laughs> I had to <laughs> I had to work. But bless her, she did she did turn up and you, turn up. and you stayed there. But there was another reason, wasn't there? Yes. Yeah, so uh, on my last night, uh, we managed to find a, a wild camping spot at a place called Windspit Quarry, which is on the Jurassic Coast in Dorset. Uh, we found a, a really lovely uh, wild camping spot just beneath the cliffs. 
beautiful sea view, crashing waves. It was all very romantic. And uh, that's where I asked Claire to marry me. That's very cool. That is very cool indeed. Impressive that she turned up. And how, what does she feel about the world camping spot before you asked her to marry her? Uh, as I said, she was she was quite resistant, um, but um, I just I I just uh, I was persistent, and uh, in in my head I thought I I don't really care <laughs> how much for how much of a chore this is going to be because it'll be all worth it in the end. Absolutely, and then and then you stayed the night there, and then she went back, and you then did your last I think seventeen miles in the pool. Yes, and Claire wins many kudos for all of this, by the way. But even more was this amazing piece of artwork done for you. I'm going to include a picture of it in the show notes, but tell everybody what it was. So yeah, the, it, it it turns out that um, even before I'd left uh, for John O'Groats, um, Claire got in contact with uh, a sculptor uh, called David Main, and mm-hmm. he is the gentleman who uh, created the southwest coast path start finish marker uh, that is is currently in place in Port harbour and that was um, installed 20 years ago Uh, i think it was a 20 year anniversary last year of that that sculpture so claire got in touch with david uh, at the very beginning and she she commissioned a a sculpture Um, and this sculpture it's beautiful man i tell you it is absolutely beautiful and what's even more beautiful is that as I understand it, she got the guy to she had a she said pictures of you with your backpack on, yeah, and he did a he did a relief you know of you actually hiking it, didn't he? Yes, that's correct. So the the sculpture is essentially a, a wooden plinth uh, with a, a profile of a mountain ridge line in this beautifully mm. charred um, black timber, and it's amazingly yeah. amazingly textured and beautiful. And then um, on the ridge line is a I'd say a, a, a three inch tall uh, metal figure um mm. and, and as you say it's 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 its resemblance is quite incredible um claire sent photos of me hiking so the height, uh, the posture <laughs> even the pack it's size because i i've got quite a small pack and i'm, I'm <laughs> secretly quite proud of <laughs> well that's the other thing by the way it, it. the thing you sent me has got all your pack details as well so people will be able to read those you don't actually carry a great deal of stuff but you're it's well thought out gear i can see when i was r- yeah. reading through it so, last question, really. Is the PCT still a dream sometime in the future? Or are you now, are you satisfied with this? I'm very satisfied, yes, because I think that the whole process I went through two autumns ago, uh, so after the summer, sure. of, the, the summer of 22, when I was really just trying to work out um, what it was about the PCT um, that I love so much. And I think doing that process and choosing to do this hike um i found closure um in in wanting to do the pct um, sure. of course if, if if someone said to me tomorrow you know no strings do you attached, want to do the PCT? Yeah, do you want to do the pct <laughs> yes absolutely um, but i i feel perfectly happy and and you know, content in um in my life and and, and what i've achieved so claire yeah, and i you should are, do. are obviously engaged and we're planning our wedding for next summer um and we've Beautiful. got we've got lots of exciting things to look forward to, and I think from now on, um, our lives will be, f- will be filled with lots of micro adventures and uh, smaller nice. trips. And yeah, I've got I've got my 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 biggest um, adventure challenge <laughs> uh, to come. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There yeah, you go. You're, d- you're damn right. Yeah. <laughs> so look, 
I want to say congratulations to both you and, and to Claire. And congratulations to you, obviously, for finishing what's an epic walk, which I never knew really existed as a hike in the UK. And it does open all sorts of ideas in my mind as well. I've got to stop thinking about things like that. But uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, buddy. Take it easy, okay? Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. How about that? A 2,400-mile trek through Scotland, around the coast of Wales, and ending up on my target for next year, the Southwest Coast Path. I'm not sure I've got another 2,000-miler in me, but if I did, that would certainly be a contender. Let's see how I'll get on next year first. Now, before I forget, I'm going to be adding a link in the show notes of a really neat document that Dan sent me. It's got a lot of detail and a map of his hike, along with mileages and a gear list. I think you're going to get a kick out of it. I've also added a few pics, but would especially draw your attention to the carving that Claire commissioned for him. It is an epic memento from an epic hike. And, do you know, he may have wanted to do the PCT, but that wasn't in the cars for him. This was his own version, and to me, it sounds like he made it exactly what he wanted. Great stuff. Now, before we get on to catch up with Jessica, our remaining member of the Mighty Blue Class of 23, I wanted to remind you all that our complete series of Woods Hole Weekend videos are now available for free on my YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes, and if you'd like to learn how to through-hike or to section-hike, then our four presenters at that weekend, including me, have got plenty to teach you. Check them out. Now, approaching our ninth month on trail, here's Jessica. Hello. Hey, Jessica, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you, Steve? I'm good. Um, we're we're speaking to each other <laughs> late on Tuesday, well, relatively late on Tuesday evening. Um, where are you right now? I am in New Jersey. Well done, you. Well done, you. You're not back at your parents still, are you? I am not. Uh, a fan of the show, Another Steve uh, contacted you, and you passed that information on to me, and he has been very gracious in letting us stay here tonight and helping us slack pack today. So where are you staying? Where's that? Uh, it's, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the town. Uh, <laughs> Island Lakes, I think. All right, near enough. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened? He reached out to you. He reached out to me. That's right. And I passed his name, Steve, uh, another, another Steve. So t- tell us um, how you met up. Uh, so you had passed on that email to me and uh, I basically contacted him yesterday, actually, because we've gotten to the point where it was going to be a two hour drive in one direction for my dad to pick us up. Wow. And that's, just a little too much so and i think i think my dad was getting a little tired because we've been getting (laughs) up at 6 a.m and getting out of the house and running through a trail and coming back to get us and all of that so uh but my dad got us i was just thinking about this so we except for one night we slack packed most of connecticut um I slapped the entire state of New York and That's amazing. most of New Jersey so far. That is awesome. And, and obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but uh, I, I know that Mike obviously wasn't well. And I know that he was expecting to start again after Thanksgiving. Did he start after Thanksgiving? He actually started the day before. 
He took right. one more day off after he saw the doctor and got meds, and then we did a little bit of a shorter day uh, mm-hmm. the day before Thanksgiving. We did take the day off on Thanksgiving, um, but yeah, he's back on trail and How's doing he feeling? Well. Is he feeling okay? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say quite a hundred percent, but he's he's doing well. Yeah, and you have to get back into it as well, don't you, really? And you spend yeah. Thanksgiving with your parents, which must be nice for them, but they've now passed you on. <laughs> you, you, you've <laughs> yeah. now been passed down the line. And um, you've crossed the Hudson, I understand, and yeah. uh, and you went through the zoo. I went through the zoo, and there was even a detour in the zoo, which totally cracked me up in some ways. Um, yeah, there's yeah. been a lot of little detours and things. And, you know, I walked across the bridge and then I got into the zoo and all of a sudden there's a construction crew and they had the pass shut down that the AT goes through. And it was kind of funny. A construction worker just happened to be walking towards me. So I asked him like, how do I get around this back to the AT? And he had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Why would he? Why would he? You lived in a you lived in a different world, Jessica, for a long time now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So So, uh, I did find my way around, but yeah. You didn't go didn't get to do Bear Mountain. And there's good and bad about that, obviously, but you know, you you have have to go around that obviously. You said that later the same day it snowed, rained and hailed on you and it was uh and but your dad was there again, wasn't he? He sure was. Uh it was supposed to we knew bad weather was coming in. Uh, the weather reports I looked at said it wasn't supposed to hit that area until like four or five o'clock. It started at two. Uh, <laughs> so I walked for, so, and it wasn't too bad at first. And then it got a little dicey. Um, so I'm kind of hurrying along trying to get done. And, you know, the sun's going down and it's getting cold. And there's no rain gear in the world that stays dry forever so just about the time i was really kind of getting to the point where i was wet and starting to shiver there was the truck so yeah that's awesome you you know when you when you look back on this you'll have have really happy memories that your dad has been part of this journey with you which is i think it's pretty awesome anyway you know and you say that you saw the new york city skyline from the trail as you crossed into new jersey and i know it's it says new york and new jersey painted on a rock isn't it is that Pretty yeah. much where you saw it then? I think it was a little bit after, yeah, or actually so, it was yeah. before that. It was before that, uh, coming southbound. So, um, Knuckles, I'm, th- I'm, yeah. I'm thinking northbound, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think it's called Precipice Rock or something like that. Um, yeah, you could see it. You know, I, work, I worked in Midtown for five and a half years, so it was oh, nice. how, how weird to be on the... Mm. Appalachian Trail and seeing Manhattan, but you know there it was. And then well, I lived yeah, there myself. Yeah, I yeah. lived. There, I lived there myself, and to see it was kind of awe-inspiring. To be honest with you, you know, it's amazing how far away it it, it is, but you can see it glimmering in the, in the in the distance, especially on a, on a decent day. And you yeah. talked about the the boardwalks. Um, tell us about those. Yeah, so this Pochuck boardwalk. Um, the day we did that. We got there fairly early in the morning, and there had been a heavy frost, and it was pretty darn cold. Um, But it gave this kind of glistening quality to all of the 
standing plants and things that were there. And of course, you know, I'm sure most people when they walk through, it's green and all of that. And <laughs> so it just had this very. You'll see a different quality. trail. You'll yeah, see a different I mean, trail, Jessica. <laughs> I am <laughs> very much so. Um, you know, these tall grasses and the cattails and things mm. just covered in frost and you know, still some birds and things. But what a what a construction feat that whole I mean, that section goes on for I mean it's, it's gotta be more way, than a mile. Yeah. Yes, it's a long way. And I just keep thinking like for anybody who doesn't have the ability to walk long distances or on uneven terrain or whatever and they want to touch the AT, like what a place that would be for them to be able to do that. That's a good point. You know what? That's a real good point because it's a it's a real it's yet another of those little sort of mini highlights you get. But you're right, it's a flat walk. It's a nice, it's a relatively easy walk on a on decent weather. Perhaps it's getting colder colder for you now. But I would think on in a on a lovely day, that on a on a nice day, that would be a beautiful way for somebody to touch the AT, as you say. And it and it does go on quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think there's a parking spot that's pretty close to Yep, it would have right. been the end of it for the way yeah. we were going, um, so it wouldn't be too. I don't think it would be wheelchair necessarily accessible, but you know, somebody that maybe sure. just couldn't go up and down all the rocks and things, like you'd be able to park fairly close and be able to walk out there and say you touch the Appalachian Trail. I mean, right. how cool would that be? Yeah. Funny enough, you know, talking to you every week, I keep having to remind myself not. Uh, no, I don't need to remind myself that you're going southbound. I just can't see the trail that you're doing because of my memory of going northbound. It sounds bizarre, I know, because we've done the same miles, but just in a different in a different direction. But it, yeah. it, it really it really throws me. And you got into New Jersey and you went to the uh, the monument, uh, High Point State Park. Um, you're pushing on now. I mean, how how far actually are you now? Uh so we have about 290 miles to go. Wow. Uh, to, not tomorrow, but the next day we should be crossing Delaware Water Gap. Wow. And then you're going to hit the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> the rocks. Which Enjoy. I, you know, people, people keep talking about it. And, I, you know, the trail the last couple of days has been fairly rocky. So the part of me is, like, trying to mentally prepare myself because – I think it might have been Steve that we're staying with um, said something about, yeah, it's rocky, but these rocks are rounded. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) But funny enough, enough, I always remember people saying, you know, when you get out of – get to Delaware Water Gap, you think all the rocks are over. They don't just suddenly stop. It's very rocky for the rest of the way. You've had rocks all the way from, from Katahdin, so, you know, I wouldn't worry about that. You, you, but that. But what Steve said is right. You know, they're rounded now. They got get pretty sharp. So I hope your boots are in decent shape because your shoes are in decent shape because you're really going to need them. And you say it's been very cold and windy in the last couple of days. Is, is the forecast now set pretty pretty dire or what? Um, well, today and tomorrow, it wasn't supposed to get above freezing. And uh, today, um, the wind was pretty intense. Um, I basically had all of my layers on and I put my rain jacket on today just to try and block some of the wind. And uh, 
we all have you've heard multiple times about how I run cold. So um, even moving, I was kind of having a hard time keeping my hands warm today at various mm-hmm. points. Um, tomorrow again, it's not supposed to get above freezing really, um, and we're up on our the trail is up kind of on a ridge line too. Sure, so sure. Um, it's going to be a little colder than the in town predicted temperature i'm sure i mean our water bottles were starting to freeze up at the end of the day today sure, um sure. so we're yes. super grateful to be sleeping inside tonight and tomorrow night. oh yeah, and tomorrow night as well so what's the plan yeah uh steve is going to slack pack us tomorrow again so uh we have one more day of slack packing and then uh next morning we're walking out with full packs and figuring it out <laughs> You know, Jessica, and I know you are very grateful, but for some of our listeners have really stepped up for you in a, in a way that must have touched your heart a lot. You know, the fact that people Absolutely. want want to help and want to get you on your way because, you know, you've been out there, what, seven months now, seven and a half months, maybe a bit Almost nine. Oh, almost nine. God, almost nine months. Oh, and still got some, some miles to do. But, you know, you're – you're still at it, girl. I mean, it's amazing to me. This is you're still pushing on and still getting there to the end. And I'm just so pleased that, pleased that you are. Are you? Um, how's how's the hiking itself, though? Is that still are you? Are you working pretty well with the hike? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, I think like physically, the biggest thing I'm having challenges with at this point is just exhaustion. Um, mm. Trying to stay warm and. You know, we're trying to push the miles because you have to at this sure. point. Um, yeah. You know, it's it, even slack packing. Like, again, you know, obviously I'm super grateful for what both my parents were able to yeah. do for yeah. us. My mom was, you know, cooking for us when we got home at night and figuring out dinner and one last thing we had to figure out. But, you know, it's it's been a long time and it's definitely taking its toll. Um I'm still kind of managing the Achilles problem I've been having, and needless to say, that slack packing has been helping with that. But yeah, sure, you know, we're going to sure. go full pack soon. Um, well, you'll be pleased to know I've got somebody else who's given me giving me their their details for you to contact as well. I'm not going to tell you over the over the phone, but you know, I will send it to you uh, probably tomorrow, actually, or maybe maybe in a minute. Um, but yeah, you know, I I think people want to see you. Because you've stuck it out, you're still there. So it's it's terrific that you're you're still moving on. But look, um, stay warm. You know, when you do get out there, you've got that lovely warm sleeping bag, haven't you? So you, you should at least be warm in there at night. So uh, are you staying in shelters? If you well, you haven't done it for a while, I suppose. But when you get back, are you going to be staying in shelters, or are you going to be staying in, in your tent? Probably shelters. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, well, it's getting. It's probably going to start to get challenging to get tent stakes in the ground at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's just easier to not have yes. to put the tents. Well, there were, ti- the there were times when there was no one else in the shelter once. I set my tent up a couple of times in the shelter. <laughs> yeah. This time <laughs> There's something kind of nice about that. Let's face it; it's, it's cold enough. There won't be any mice around, so you, you should be okay in the shelter. So I, I think it'd be quite nice to be in the shelters generally. So just keep going with that. Okay, but look, look, I'm glad you're still going. I'm glad Mike's uh, back on it as well, because I think that would have been difficult if he hadn't been able to continue. So I'm glad he's carrying on. Um, And we'll catch up again next week, okay? All right. 
All right then. Cheers then. Bye, Jessica. Bye. You've got to hand it to her. She's still pushing through and plenty of you have reached out to me to offer Jessica help along the way. I'm very confident she's going to make it now. So if you'd like to offer a hand along the way, let me know and I'll put you in touch with her. Thanks as ever goes to our awesome donors. This week, I'd like to thank monthly donors Jessica Diaz, Bruce Brinker, Gregory Gertner, Hugh Ickreth, Melanie Swisher, Justin Mullins, Kevin Eastman, and our friends at Small World IFT. And you will never guess, <laughs> but I got an email from Small World IFT yesterday. Turns out that she's Colleen Crescenti. <laughs> and she laughs when I say that name. And Small World is not only a business, but a trial name. She even mused about turning the podcast into a TV format, which is her business. I'm up for it, Colleen. Get your people to call my people. <laughs> thanks for letting me know you are. And thanks to all our donors. You know how much you mean to me. Finally today, George Stefanos is also coming to the end of his hike, but 40 years ago. And today, well, that first tantalising glimpse of Katahdin happens at long last. I'll see you next week. Wednesday the 28th September 1983, mile 2068.1. It was a raw, bitter night, once again ending a string of warm nights after one in a row. I couldn't get myself out of the sleeping bag this morning. It was seven o'clock when I finally dragged my lazy butt out. By the time I hit the trail, it was 8.30. Some things never change. The climb of Chairback was easy and a long cliff walk around the summit had the best views of the entire range. Conditions were perfect. Apparently a dry cold front moved through last night and pushed the warm, hazy air out to sea. It was a crystal clear, blue sky day. Nevertheless, I could not pick out Katahdin from Chairback. The great mass of the Whitecap range blocked most views in that direction, but a few peaks rose above the surrounding foothills. One of them must have been Katahdin, but it was not apparent to me which one. I'd been chasing one faded dream for 2,000 miles, and it still was just a dream. Did it even exist? Maybe the whole thing was just an elaborate joke. After a short but very steep drop over those loose chunks of blasted shale down the sheer cliff face, which gives Chairback Mountain its name, came an easy, more gradual descent to East Chairback Pond. I spent a lot of time taking pictures on the mountain's summit and along some open ledges near the edge of a plateau below the cliffs. Autumn colours were finally beginning to break out in earnest. Everything about my hike seems to be timed perfectly lately. I took the side trail, such as it was, to East Chairback Pond. The path had not yet been cut or cleared, but the future route had been plotted out and marked with ribbons tied around tree trunks. It was a steep descent and virtually a bushwhack, but the difficult access enhanced the pond's heady aura of isolation. As the journey's end draws near, I'm filled with a growing compulsion not to miss a thing. My own personal strain of Maine disease, I guess. I can live with it. My side trips in Maine always turn out to be worth the extra time and effort. At the bottom of the long descent from Chairback Range was the second biggest waterford on the Appalachian Trail, the west branch of the Pleasant River. 25 yards across and barely knee-deep, it was no real challenge to a backpacker who had so recently waded the Kennebec. Nevertheless, a refreshing wade through icy waters always gets me humming the theme song from The Magnificent Seven. On the far side of the river, the Appalachian Trail followed an old logging track called the West Branch Road through and beyond the Hermitage, a stately grove of soaring white pines with massive trunks surrounding a small clearing with bits of an old cabin's foundation. 
About a mile and a quarter past the river, the AT turned off the road, which continued ahead as the start of the Gulf Hagus Trail. I was running late again, for all the same reasons as yesterday, but I could not pass up the Grand Canyon of Maine. I followed the side trail across Gulf Hagus Brook and followed the stream down towards the Gulf. Along the way, I passed Screwauger Falls, where the wide stream created futuristic rock sculptures as it carved a deep canyon through the dark grey slate. Two 20-foot-high waterfalls connected by smaller cascades flowed into huge rock bowls, forming deep pools with water so clear I could pick out individual rocks along the bottoms. A cedar and hemlock forest grew right up to the rim of the canyon, while grasses, ferns, moss and small trees grew like lush oases in thin layers of duff collected in crevices and on the tiny ledges along the rock walls. The walls of this impressive miniature gulf rose more than 60 feet above the narrow channel in spots. The canyon soon faded into a milder series of smaller cascades, flumes, mini-falls and shallow pools as the ground levelled and the brook continued onward through a shallow, rocky channel. I took a one and a half mile round trip to Hammond Street Pitch, a high cliff overlooking the deepest portion of the chasm. The west branch of the Pleasant River roared over cascades and flowed through pools a hundred feet straight below. The opposing cliffs were even higher, massive dark grey walls of broken slate with pine and hardwoods clinging to tenuous footholds along their face. Although heavily forested and smaller in scope than the more spectacular canyons out west, Gulf Hagus was impressive. Like so many other thru-hikers, I made a vow to return some day and explore the remainder of the place. It was one thirty, and I had not exactly been burning up the trail thus far. The next shelter was ten miles away. I really wanted to stay there tonight. The lady from Boston at Chairback Gap leaned to last night had told me that the location was beautiful and the structure less than two weeks old. The one small obstacle between me and some exceptional trail accommodations was the entire Whitecap range. I needed to do some serious stepping to get there by dark. I hiked eight miles, climbing three mountains, before stopping for my next rest break. When this trip is over, it is going to be tough to look back and select its finest hour, but this stretch of hiking will certainly be a finalist. It sometimes seems as if I'm trying to make up for a lifetime of quitting in five months, which I suppose I am, come to think of it. The initial ascent of the Whitecap Range was gradual. The Appalachian Trail passed through a varied and interesting forest of hardwoods and conifers, mostly on old, abandoned tote roads. I made excellent time along this stretch. After three and a half miles, the AT crossed a stream known as Gulf Hagers Brook, wound through a bog and leapt straight up Gulf Hagers Mountain on a very steep, rocky path. The time I had made up in the lower portion of the climb drifted away like flotsam on the tide. The summit of Gulf Hagers Mountain was partially open. The ridge crest appeared to have been either burned over or clear-cut in the not-too-distant past. Covered with a low, dense tangle of scrubby growth, it sported some decent views back to the south. I paused very briefly at the summit to take it all in before turning northward and starting down the other side. Suddenly, I was frozen in my tracks. I had been zoning out at the time, moving ahead on autopilot. My mind was wandering distant pathways, tuning out a snowballing mass of fatigue. I had no idea why my feet had abruptly stopped, why the hair on my arms, legs and neck were spiking like the quills of a porcupine. I returned to the present, blinking like a man waking from a dream. Then I saw it. Ahead of me, and to the left, was a vision drawn from the mists of dreams, a legend of long-ago summer nights kept alive by the aspirations and longings of a tired wanderer, a myth made real by the sweat and blood of two thousand weary miles. Yeah, that sure is some mountain. I turned to face the speaker, 
a steely-eyed backpacker with a grizzled beard, a Gore-Tex serape, and a little burned-out stub of a cigar in the corner of his mouth. Then that's it? I asked. We made it? Yep, he replied. It's been a long road. Long and hard, but it was worth it. He smiled. By the way, you don't have to worry about the general anymore. After today, we're doing things my way. You look like you can use a rest. He turned to leave. By the way, I said, who are you? He turned around. I'm you, yet." He pointed to the general. So's he. He peered into my eyes. I think you spent too much time alone in the woods. I smiled as my gaze returned to the mountain. So many miles behind me, it looked so close, it was getting late. I headed down the ridge. Beyond the summit, the crest of Gulf Hagas Mountain was a descending progression of small knobs. Viewpoints along the ridge were better than at the summit. I dropped into a grassy gap between Gulf Hagas Mountain and West Peak. An official MATC campsite was there, but it wasn't much, just a couple of mowed patches amidst the higher scrub. A spring was supposed to be 200 yards downhill, but I could find no marked trail. Even the Appalachian Trail was poorly blazed and lost in a muddle of herd paths. I lost about ten precious minutes stumbling around trying to locate the route northward. I finally found the trail and began the long, steep climb up West Peak. An exhausted hiker topped that summit but kept going and the good views gave me a bit of a lift. There were even better views along the descent into the next gap. The climb up Hay Mountain was reasonable, but I was absolutely spent even as I was making it. It was the third consecutive major mountain I climbed without stopping at the tail end of a three-day marathon. Good thing the general will not be around to talk me into any more of these. Hay Mountain was considerably wooded, but there were a few partial views near the top. I pushed on grimly, descending into the sag between Hay and Whitecap, and even managing to climb part of the steep slope on the other side. Finally, I had to sit down for ten minutes, though the sun was setting. I had a granola bar and drank some water. Resuming the climb, I caught an intense second wind at exactly the right moment and roared up to the summit ridge of Whitecap. After that, it was simply a gradual ascent through dwarfs' roofs to the top, at which I arrived slightly before sunset. I was just in time to experience the deep, rich colours from a mountaintop along the Appalachian Trail for the second consecutive evening. I know I said only yesterday that I'd made my final night hike. I've been full of shit before, and imagine I will be full of shit again many times. The summit was a clutter of radio transmitters, a couple of tin sheds and the ruins of an old fire tower, but the views were amazing. I saw Katahdin one final time as I swung around the north side of the crest and started down. I went as far down the mountainside as I could before stopping to get my flashlight out of my backpack. The batteries had died, so I was treated to the adventure of locating my spares and installing them in the dark. When the job was finished, I turned on the light and the bulb blew, so I had the privilege of reliving the entire experience one more time. Ten minutes after stopping, I was finally able to continue my hike with a working flashlight. I arrived at Logan Brook lean-to at almost 7.30. Few homes had ever been such a welcome sight. The structure is brand spanking new and in mint condition. It was built to replace the old white cap lean-to, which has recently been relocated off the Appalachian Trail. Until this year, the AT did not go over Whitecap Mountain, but descended off the ridge from the sag between Whitecap and Hay. AT hikers were compelled to walk more than a mile on a side trail to reach the summit. That was one excellent relocation, and I'm glad it was completed in time for my through-hike. The shelter is in a pretty little woody canyon on the north slope of Whitecap Mountain. Logan Brook runs just below the shelter on the floor of the canyon, a nice sound to which to fall asleep. This is a beautiful spot, and I have it all to myself tonight. It is hard to believe I'm only 70 miles from the end of the Appalachian Trail. 
It is hard to believe the trail has an end after following it for such a long time. But I've seen the legendary mountain, so apparently it must be true. Thursday the 29th September 1983, mile 2087.3. I took my time preparing to leave the shelter this morning. The place was even nicer in the daylight. I was out of my sleeping bag at 6.30, but it was 8.30 on another cool crisp morning when I took one final look at my fifth to last home on the Appalachian Trail and started hiking the remainder of that long steep slope down to the lowlands. The AT descended moderately along the floor of the canyon for almost a mile, then slabbed to the side of the slope for a brief while before dropping sharply to the foot of the mountain and crossing a gravel logging road. A two-mile stretch of nice, level terrain brought me to a fording of the east branch of the Pleasant River. It was nothing. My feet didn't even get wet. This was followed by a steep climb up a spur of Boardman Mountain. A viewpoint at the crest looked back over the flat river valley to Whitecap, looming 2,000 feet above me. I took a half-hour break, simply because it was a nice spot and I felt like it. I surrendered to main disease at every opportunity and the day drifted pleasantly. I imagine the general would have relished slapping me. Catalden's magnetic pull had ebbed considerably following its long-awaited first sighting yesterday. A relatively level ridgewalk led to Mountain View Pond. Across the small lake, Boardman's slopes were aflame with four colours. Water and sky were an incredible blue, while conifers and late-turning hardwoods added some nice green tones to the mix. The five-month trek was climaxing nicely. From the pond, the Appalachian Trail climbed very gently along an old grassy tote road before leaving the road and shooting straight up the steep slope of Little Boardman Mountain. It crested the ridge at the top of some ledges with great views and then passed another ledge which had even better ones. The air was dry and clean with no haze or pollution. Little smoke-puffed clouds stood out in 3D against the deep blue sky and individual trees were discernible on ridges miles away. Wind ripples on the surface of Mountain View Pond were deep, precise etchings on its perfect surface. Little Boardman's summit was heavily wooded, but I caught another glimpse of Catardon through the trees. The entire trail from the east branch of the Pleasant to beyond this point was another 1983 relocation, making two great relos in a row. The trail dropped off the Little Ridge and returned to the True Lowlands, where it skirted one of the many large lakes for which this portion of Maine is famous. This one was called Crawford Pond. At one point, the AT touched shore at a tiny but perfect sand beach, perhaps 25 square yards in area, with views back across the lake to Little Boardman Mountain and several other low ridges. Five or six fishermen were out on the water in small boats, quite a few people to see all at once in this remote part of Maine. After following the south shore of Crawford Pond for about a mile, the Appalachian Trail trod old abandoned tote roads along the course of Cooper Brook for eight miles, usually out of sight of the stream. The forest was rather attractive, but this stretch was rather dull compared to the preceding trail, and I made my best time of the day along it. I passed Cooper Brook lean-to, which sat beside an attractive cascade, and brushed against the shores of several ponds. When the 80 finally swung away from the brook for the last time, it crossed several outlets of a large marshy lake called Mud Pond. Some of the fords were a little tricky. Eventually, I ascended a low ridge overlooking the pond. It was much prettier than its name implied. There was no third consecutive night hike at the end of this day, but I did not miss it by much. At 6.20, the Appalachian Trail passed a small peninsula thrust into an enormous expanse of water. Along the eastern edge, a string of about a dozen ageing wooden cabins slumbered beneath the giant pines of even greater antiquity along a gravel shore. When I took breakfast at Carrying Place Camps near Pierce Pond on the morning I would afford the Kennebec, I mentioned they were the first three sets of old hunting camps still on the AT. This was the second. Old Antlers Camps on Lower Joe Mary Lake. 
Unlike carrying place, these cabins were long ago abandoned to the forest. Most were ruined shells, gradually crumbling through slow years of neglect. However, two were still habitable. Near the point of the peninsula, cabins number one and number three had been rescued from decay. Two men were set up in one when I arrived, but number three was empty. That is my new home for tonight. This was the second of two stops which came highly recommended by the lady from Boston I met two nights ago. She was especially enthusiastic about this one. She and her husband found an indescribable quality here which drew them in and captured their hearts. I could not exactly see the attraction at first. There were no luxury accommodations. My cabin was dusty and dilapidated. A lumpy, naked mattress on a ramshackle bunk gave off a slight but distinct musty aroma. The place gradually won me over. A timeless quality resides here, an aura of having stepped into the past. From an old wooden chair on my screened front porch, I watched loons drifting upon quiet waters, fading into a deepening twilight. When the darkness fell like a theatrical curtain ending the show, I lit a candle on an old table inside and began this entry. Usually, I must write sprawled out on the hardwood floor of a shelter or the plastic floor of my tent. This is better. I have three quarts of drinking water from a spring I passed three miles back, and plenty of lake water right outside for cooking. I have a comfortable berth upon which to lay down my sleeping bag. I have a rustic old cabin from a vanishing era in time. I have a vision of beauty waiting for me just outside my window when morning breaks over miles of gently lapping waters stretching eastward from the point. I also have but 51.2 miles of remaining trail. Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.